0: Good morning, please be seated. In the case of uh, Her Majesty the Queen against Richard Valliere, uh, for uh, the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, Julien Beauchamp La Liberté, and Eric Bernier, and Valerie Bailey. For the respondent, Julie Giroux. And for the intervener, the Association Québécoise des Avocats et des Avocats de la Défense, Jessie Heroux. Maître Bernier, or beauchamp Liberté. Good morning, Honourable Justices. I will be speaking today for the appellant. And first of all, I would like to uh, thank you for leave to address you today in the case at bar. And as I said, I'm going to address uh, the court uh, regarding the very first question at issue as to uh, determining and applying the proper uh, framework. And then my colleague will deal with the second question with regard to uh, uh, the rule. Thus, I will begin.
1: Son crystal clear.
0: The words are crystal clear, the words are limpid, the terms used by Parliament are limpid as well. The amount of the fine in view must equal the value of the proceeds that would have been forfeited, in other words, uh, if it had not been squandered. But uh, uh, so if uh, we listen to the Court of Appeal then it is conveying the message that crime does pay instead of that crime does not pay and it is not just the profits derived from the crime that must be forfeited it must be the total value of the proceeds of crime as stated in uh, 462-37 clearly set out in criminal code the proceeds of crime and property this is set out in the criminal code as I said and worded. Mr. Beauchamp Liberté about these definitions I need uh, some information from you please obviously at 436-37-3 430, as you said uh, it talks about the value of property the equal to the value of the property and when we look at the definition of proceeds of crime we can see that we have benefit or advantage and after that there is the definition of property so here how should I consider the words benefit or advantage, which are in the very definition of proceeds of crime in addition to the word property? Yes, thank you, Justice Coté. I would refer you principally to paragraph one of 462 when we talk about of, uh, when we talk about uh, something that is the object of forfeiture. For example, when we talk about uh, a value that is equivalent to the property, then we're talking about a property that can be confiscated and uh, therefore the proceeds of crime in that the benefit or the advantage, the, it's an immaterial advantage or an immaterial advantage could not be forfeited and therefore the system of forfeiture, because that is the basic system, applies to a tangible property, for example, money that can be uh, forfeited. And therefore, the property contemplated here, as you said, refers to uh, Section 2, which is the definition of uh, property. So we're talking about uh, property originally in the possession or under the control of any person. And therefore, the property, uh, when we go back to the article on the section on forfeiture of the proceeds of crime, in that, Uh, The facts uh, in the case of uh, Mr. Valliere were the property of the proceeds of crime, which is the maple syrup that was stolen. So that's the property that needs to be forfeited. Is that correct? Initially was the syrup. And so that's why you're saying that that's what we're looking at today. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And in addition, without... Uh, getting into uh, a semantic argument, the term benefit, benefice in French, benefit in English, does not have the same meaning either. So the intent of uh, the legislator is clear. It is the forfeiture of the proceeds of crime and in the case at bar, in the case of Mr. Valliere, the proceeds of crime, that is the prof- property obtained uh, uh, in Canada or outside of Canada directly or in- indirectly, is has to do with the offense so what is the property obtained from that the tangible property is the uh, the material property is the maple syrup which uh, because it was stolen from the federation of uh, maple syrup producers and that brings me excuse me for interrupting you uh uh Mr. Beauchamp-Ledbert we're talking about 10 million dollars Now is that because uh, Mr. Valliel admitted to that? Because I am also seeing figures of uh, 17 million, 21 million. So to nail down the value of this maple syrup that is the property, that uh, you're claiming that the amount should be uh, reclaimed upon, can you uh, tell me how we got to 10 million dollars as compared to 17 or 21? Thank you, Chief Justice, for the question. Obviously, the facts are very important, and. I could uh, make a link with the uh, question that has been submitted, but the values as such are the following values. So, and this uh, emerges from the preceding decisions. The uh, quantity of the product stolen was uh, 5.9 million pounds of maple syrup. And uh, the evidence adduced at the trial court was uh, of a market value of over 21 million dollars and in fact the court in certain areas uh, is sticking with 17 million dollars now for the purposes of uh, this exercise the court retained 17 million dollars uh, the court also talked about 20 million dollars and I'm not talking about the difference uh, uh, between those two amounts here uh, that is not an issue because the value of the syrup itself was uh, far exceeding 10 million dollars yes but, uh, Mr. Beauchamp Liberté, here, the property here, is it the maple syrup that was stolen or is it the money that was derived from, uh, fencing the maple syrup? Well, the product was the maple syrup, but the proceeds of the crime from the offence was also the maple syrup. But the value obtained by Richard Valliere, uh, the respondent in this case, the conversion of the property and the value derived from that was $10 million. So the $10 million uh, was admitted to by Richard Valier himself when in cross-examination uh, when he was presented with uh, banking evidence, whereas there was $8 million that uh, were transacted through his accounts, he was asked, Was there more than that? And he himself admitted he said, Yes, I received $10 million. And uh, both the trial judge and the Court of Appeal uh, retained that figure, and that is very important and something that was uh, submitted to the Court of Appeal in uh, paragraph 223-24, and uh, it says, and I quote, that all of these amounts are a proceeds of crime, considering that Hrishal recognized that his sole proceeds, his sole revenue in 2011-2012 came from the purchase and resale of this syrup. And uh, given that uh, all of the... Uh, uh, syrup came. Uh, the 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 proceeds from that syrup came from theft or fraud. The judge can conclude that those are proceeds of crime under 462.37. Yes, uh, just a, a detail, Mr. Beauchamp-Liberte, because I understand that uh, Mr. Valliere, when he was questioned, he. He admitted to $10 million. The trial judge uh, retained that figure. He talked about $10 million as a round figure, uh, an approximate figure. And in the evidence, now that's a detail, but please explain to me. In the evidence in Section 2 that is in your uh, condensed book, uh, but you didn't refer to all the figures, it says that proceeds of crime attributed to Richard Valliere is to $10 million but you also quote the bank accounts you refer to the bank accounts and that is $8 million and I was just wondering is the $8 million perhaps that's more accurate because everyone seems to say uh, that it was the money that transacted through the accounts and uh, Mr. Vaniel gave a, a sort of an approximate figure so, figure. so perhaps it's $8 million because uh, I couldn't find uh, your reference to forty-six the evidence that you uh, submitted to our court I couldn't find that reference but in section 2 uh, or rather in s2 it uh, he talks uh, it's referred to the CIBC accounts among uh, among others which come out to 8 million dollars so what about the 2 million dollars of difference yes uh Justice Kassir just to say that uh, exhibit s s2 that was in the file is uh, the exhibit that was presented to the trial judge and you can see in in S2 which is in uh, on page 144 and it says uh, that this is uh, there was an uh, an aid for the ruling of the court with the different sources the different references to exhibits and testimony to guide the trial judge in the different requests. And for example, I'm taking exhibit, I'm sorry, page, the second page out of seven where the details of the values of uh, the theft and the fraud are set out to the court. The losses to uh, come to the presentation and that includes the $8 million, which that represents the bank accounts, and you are right. Uh, the exhibit uh, 46 uh, had to do with the bank accounts uh, and the uh, the account books of Mr. Valliere. It was not reproduced here in this evidence because uh, it was clear uh, on the evidence there was no dispute as to the testimony of Mr. Valliere and his very own admission to the amount of $10 million. Mm. So when we look at the testimony of Mr. Vadier to respond directly to your question, when we uh, see his uh, testimony, and I'm going to be on our volume two of the Laplante file, and that is on page 97 of uh, the Laplante file, where we find in the cross-examination of Mr. Vadier. Prior to that moment, he presented the three bank accounts of— there was a personal account and then two business accounts, and he confirmed that he was the only uh, owner, the the only name on these bank accounts, and uh, prior to that, through questioning and answers, he confirmed that uh, the inputs and outputs— these transactions that were conducted were to purchase and resell uh, stolen maple syrup. That was their only purpose and so on page 97 at line 5 in terms of the money that came into your company how much money came in in the summer 2011-2012 and he said and I quote about 10 million dollars and the question was that 10 million uh answer yes approximately and then the follow-up question was and the only uh, income that you had the only receipts that you had were from maple syrup and the answer was yes and uh, it continues from there and even further at page 98 line 2 and I quote, these $10 million was that uh, uh, profit and the question was not uh, uh, continued but he said that's gross that's what the companies paid me to buy it for them to buy it and so there's nothing better than admission straight from the horse's mouth in this case the accused in terms of the uh, the sales and the proceeds of crime. So. Sir, I understood that both the trial judge and the Court of Appeal agree that uh, the value of the property is $10 million. Yes. So the real question here, it seems to me, I would argue, in the case at Barr, is to know why and if the Court of uh, Appeal was right in using the value of the proceeds of crime as a reference number to determine the sentence that was handed down here rather than the value of the property as uh, at least as I understand like uh, other courts across the country have done uh, for them that was the uh, line of authorities to be used. Now I think that is the question here at Bar. To what extent in order to avoid double recovery uh, do we have to uh, look at the degree of personality proportionality with regard uh, to the accused and the co conspirators and the third question is it, uh, to know why of course uh, the Court of Appeal or or rather why the other parties were not allowed to hear about uh, at the Court of Appeal. Yes, you're right Chief Justice and you have uh, targeted very well not only Canadian Courts of appeals, appeals recognized that the rule of law was unanimous and this Honourable Court also recognized uh, uh, the unanimous uh, ruling in Raffilovich, uh, where the majority ruled that uh, it was very clear the uh, uh, fine must equal the value of the property. Now that is what brings up another one of your questions that is the intention, the intent of the Court of Appeal, what was the intent because it created a new discretion a third discretionary power for a trial judge to choose between the value of the proceeds of crime or the actual profit that was derived from the crime and that is a central error that was made by the court. There is no discretionary power to choose between the value of the proceeds or the value of the profit. The terms of the legislator are, are clear in the section itself uh, when uh, the debates were held at Parliamentary Committee at the time uh, with regard to case law over the years and, uh, I would uh, say right up until September 2021 I might, I would cite, uh, the Chalier decision which is in our condensed book at TAB because uh, we're talking about uh, a decision that from 70 or rather uh, September 2021 and uh, even with regard to uh, Charrière, even the Court of Appeal of Quebec recognized that uh, we're submitting as we're submitting to the court today at uh, paragraph 223, the uh, fine in lieu uh, is imposed when it is in, in the context of the replacement of the order when it is established that the proceeds of crime cannot be confiscated, cannot be forfeited. The judge can uh, uh, impose a fine in lieu of, uh, and the amount is. Uh, and as I said, the uh, fine must be equal to the value of the property that should have been forfeited because uh, the equivalent between the value of the property and the amount of the fine is inherent to the very notion of replacement or in lieu of. So what happened in this case then? Well, uh, without uh, going into the to the facts, because uh, I also... Uh, uh, pleaded in the Charriere case, but I do think that that's what the court should retain today. Is that in March 2020, when the uh, Quebec Court of Appeal ruled in the Valliere decision, it uh, issued a proposal with regard to the third power of disc- discretionary power, but in September 21, in the decision of Charriere, I think uh, that this reflects the rule of law, and that is what we are asking this Honorable Court to apply today. And if you allow, I, uh, I did hear a second question.
2: Donc si okay. on vous suit sur cette... question, if we were to go along with your argument, without drawing any inference, if we were to go along with you in this case we don't have to be concerned about the value of the property being 21 or 10 or so on, given that the Crown agrees that the replacement value is 10 million. Answer, exactly. And that's an exercise that we did during the trial. By the book, legally speaking, the value of the proceeds should have been the market value estimated at 17 or 21 million. However, the accused himself admits having sold the the property and receiving 10 million. So the other amounts, 17 or 21, were artificial and unreasonable, even though reasonableness doesn't have its place in calculating the amount here, with all due respect. It wasn't supported by evidence. The accused himself said he received 10 million by selling the the property that was the subject of the crime. So we all agree. Even the respondent agrees with that amount of 10 million. So that's why we are sticking to that. Question, talking about the principles, if for example, someone sells the property but with a loss. At a loss, the person voluntarily decides to sell the property very fast at 30% of its value. Should that be considered? Answer. At that time I would say yes, up to a certain point, because, and it's clearly what Mr. Vallier did when he was selling his maple syrup, he was selling it cheaper than the market rate. So there could have been a loss, so to speak. But the fact that one obtains some money after selling a property, as I said, there's some conversion of property derived from crime. Where we shouldn't go, and unfortunately that's where the Quebec Court of Appeal is allowing, is to allow for such losses. Let me give you an example of a criminal organization which at the end of its financial year reports losses because it has to pay its traffickers, it has to pay for fuel that it puts in vehicles to transport drugs. Then from a tax perspective that could have an effect. So when the Court of Appeal decides to Apply that on the proceeds of crime, it leads us to a mathematical exercise, which very often should not be done by trial courts, and which gets us to the intent of the lawmaker, which is to recover the proceeds of the crime. To get back to the expression used by the court in Makilovich, It would be meaning that crime will be paying because the offender will be allowed to have a negative financial year. Question. I have another question for you. After that, I'll leave the amounts. Let's suppose that someone obtains 10 million, as is the case here, but is able to, to invest the money. Well, don't tell me how to invest money obtained uh, illegally and reap some benefits from that money. The benefit obtained by investing that money or lending it, will that, should that be included in the value of the property? Answer, yes, indeed. And let me come back to the definition because these are very clear. It is important, however, to refer to that In the definition of property, uh, Section 2 of the Criminal Code, Paragraph B, property under the control of someone, and all property against which or for which they have been converted or exchanged or acquired using that conversion. So let me come back to your example. You are talking about the financial investment. I would rather take the example of a building, a house, an offender, With proceeds of crime, money purchases a building, irrespective of the cost, that building appreciates over time, and that's what happens in the financial markets. At the time when the state forfeits that property, and I'm referring to your example of the investment, the property and the proceeds. it would be unreasonable to say that we are only forfeiting the proceeds of the initial crime 10 million initially invested or the value of the house at the time of purchase and we leave you with your interest we give it to you the property appreciated or not should be con- was converted into monetary value and that is what should be confiscated it's not only the profits from the crime that should be forfeited. I hope I answered your question. Mr. Chief Justice, in at some point you talked about the possibility of double recovery. Of course, that's our uh, opinion. That's another error made by the court of appeal when it says that considering the methodology applied by the trial judge in Valier and if that same methodology were used there could be double recovery or imposition of a fee of a fine that is higher than the loss that the Federation incurred. That takes us to paragraph 231 or 32. Very respectfully, that is a factual misunderstanding of the reality of the facts or the different cases. and. I would like to tie that with a second questioning issue, the importance that the court had in requesting the intervention of the parties. Let me call on the, request the court to take volume one of our file, 10 to page 99, a summary table of the fines in lieu, it is important for us to properly understand the facts and the different fines that could have been imposed in different cases. In our summary table, this is a summary, as I said, but supported by evidence in a marginal way. Specific references are added for the specific uh, allegations we made. It's very important to understand primarily to be sure that I have this the, the right table. I have one table here in volume one. For me, it's on page 101 with it starts with Valier Caron, it's annex one. If you say one o one. That was my mistake. That is a table that is presented horizontally. Summary table of fines in lieu imposed on all offenders. Is it the same that you have in your context book, in tab twenty? Yes, indeed, Mr. Justice. Let's look at my condensed book. Yes, uh, Mr. Justice, tab 20. It's the same table drawn from our documents. As I said, it's important to properly uh, understand the issues because Valier and Caron, the main accomplice, did not go through the same uh, proceedings. Unfortunately, the Court of Appeal conflates some evidence that was adduced in the Valier case and others that were adduced in Mr. Caron's case. And the main difference is as follows. In the Valier case, Caron doesn't testify, in the Caron case Valier doesn't testify, but Caron testifies. The two legal proceedings are before different trial judges. In the Valier case, as you said, the court rightfully says that the value is 10 million, whereas for Mr. Caron, the court says the value of the proceeds is 1.2 million dollars namely an amount of $15,000 received for his participation in each of the trips transporting maple syrup even mr caron says that of that 15 million dollars received for the 80 trips he gives 4000 of the of the 15000 he gives 4000 to someone else and what remains is 11,000 or so. So in assessing the evidence, given its discretionary power to assess the evidence, the court retains the following tangible evidence, $15,000 for transmitting the, for transporting the, the property. So Mr. Caron, says he's simply someone who executes the crime, he says he receives this money from two Italian brothers. And double recovery that the appeal court refers to, unfortunately, is not supported by evidence when we look at the facts, because the proceeds of the crime that Mr. Valier received, $10 million, does not have the same source as the proceeds of crime that Mr. Avi Karan receives? Question. I have a question for you. You say it's not the same source, but we are still talking about the same maple syrup, maple syrup so, stolen from different actors in the operation, but it's the same maple syrup. So if the value of the property stolen is 10 million, For example, the 1.2 million that goes to Mr. Caron, is it included in the value of 10 million? or does it, You are saying it came from a different source, but at the very beginning, we saw, said that the property was maple syrup. Yes, indeed. So the 1.2 million attributed to Mr. Caron, is that part of the 10 million or not? Answer. Looking at the evidence, retained by the trial judge in Caron, no, that is not part of the $10 million because, and here again, this is what the trial judge says, the Court of Appeal doesn't refer to this factual finding by the trial judge, and according to Caron, he received the money from two Italian brothers, question, but is the same maple syrup answer the evidence shows that Caron participates in the theft of the maple syrup, but there's no evidence adduced, or rather retained by the trial judge, referring to the fact that the two Italian brothers got their source f- from Richard Valier. So since these were separate proceedings and the evidence was presented separately, the two trial judges arrived at different factual findings and the Court of Appeal that had the privilege of re-examining the two trials and the entire evidence for Valier. He said the methodology applied was inexact, the profit should have been retained. But when he looks at the methodology used in the current case, the finding is that the exercise was done correctly and that they don't have to intervene. Here again, there is some conflation with interpretation of these uh, proceedings. Question, the basic problem here maybe is another way of uh, asking the question that uh, my colleague Justice Cote was asking. There are different rulings by different judges and different methods used in calculating the proceeds of crime depending on the rule that the different accomplices could have played in the operation. Now, the, when we come to apportioning the different amounts, there will always be a problem of consistency when it comes to those uh, of rulings. Well, this is just a question and not an assertion. Is it not true that in any case, we can always say that it's not possible to arrive at an exact apportionment because we know about possession, control, and all that. But this leads to the problem of double recovery. So what can be done? Answer. To answer your question, Mr. Justice, let me summarize it this way. It depends on the evidence. And the evidence that was adduced in Mr. Valier's case, and what is be in, before you today has to do with the fact that Mr. Valier did not apportion 10 million, like we saw in Dyckman, for example, where the Court of Appeal is, is the source from which the Court of Appeal draws its ruling. In indictment, there was evidence that the proceeds of crime had been apportioned between different accomplices and the same proceeds of crime had been given to different accomplices. So all depends on the evidence. The evidence retained by the Court of Appeal is that Mr. Valier possessed and controlled 10 million of the proceeds of crime and now to relate that to the Dyckman case. Paragraph 90, 90 to 100, the principle that the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, arrived at, something we agree with, has two premises. The first is that the evidence should establish that there was apportionment of benefits, and the second premise is that for as long as the total amount of the fines is equal to the total amount of the proceeds of crime. so. We respectfully submit that the Quebec Court of Appeal wrongfully interpreted Dyckman when it said that it had the power to reduce the amount and to only consider the profit from the proceeds of crime. That's not what Dyckman was all about. In Dyckman, we see the possibility of apportioning the fine and the total amount of the fine between different accomplices who had possession of the same proceeds of crime. Factually speaking, that is what was retained by the trial judge and the Court of Appeal in Quebec. It's not the case for Valier and Caron because it's not the same proceeds of crime. Question, but it's the same maple syrup. Answer, for Valier, the evidence is beyond all reasonable doubt. We can look at what the trial judge said, but when we look at Caron and the source of the money, the two Italian brothers, The evidence is silent on that. Mr. Caron is an executor and that is what the trial judge retained in Caron.
0: And so respectfully, uh, we're not talking about uh, the Caron case here, but we uh, should now come back to Mr. Badiard in his case. If we look at the Diekman principles, uh, there is no need for apportionment of the fine because there is no evidence uh, that there uh, should be a, re- an, a that there was an apportionment, and in addition, the total amount of the fine is not equivalent to the total value of the proceeds of crime. And there again, this is a, an error of, in, of factual interpretation that the court of appeal made that uh, what had been uh, the, the fine uh, that, that if the same fine uh, uh, that was imposed on Baliao had been imposed on the co-conspirators there were then uh, the uh, total amount would have been uh, much higher than what was actually lost by the Fédération and uh, the total comes out to 12 million. So yes, those are very large amounts and as the Quebec Court of Appeals said and uh, they began, they said that the fine is, was exorbitant but it's not exorbitant it's simply uh, uh commensurate with the uh, scope of the crime committed and uh, in terms of uh, uh, and uh, the sureté to quebec investigated this operation and uh, it was agreed that the fine was simply commensurate with the scope of the crime committed uh, richard vader determined the amount of his fine maître Beauchamp, la liberté the the first judge drew factual conclusions, for example, when he says at uh, paragraph 42, when we look at the flowchart Avic Caron and uh, Richard Bagliard, were the ringleaders. So uh, could we infer then from that that uh, they jointly controlled uh, uh, the proceeds of crime in that uh, case? Answer. The two ringleaders uh, does not mean, just because there were two ringleaders, it doesn't mean that they controlled and possessed uh, that amount and the uh, the stolen goods to the same extent. Uh, because I'm coming back to the Valier case, Avec uh, Caron uh, led uh, the cell of thieves and Richard uh, Valier uh, led the cell of uh, people who uh, sold the stolen goods, the fencers. So yes, we could infer that and draw the conclusion that uh, if there's a type of flowchart then uh, they're in the same place in the hierarchy but the proceeds of crime there again uh, is differs from one individual to another in this group. And I'd just like to come back to the fact that we're working with the factual conclusions of the trial judge and the court appeal, court of appeal and therefore the uh, uh, fine imposed on Richard vadiel was $10 million because there was no evidence uh, that that uh, uh, amount of money was apportioned. Could we think, uh, could we imagine that uh, Richard Vadiel gave some of that money to other people? Sure, we might think that but unfortunately or fortunately that is not supported by the evidence that was deduced. Yes, but the point I'm making because in the same paragraph 42 uh, the judge said that uh, it was uh, uh, Mr. Badiel who sold the su- the syrup but at one point uh, Mr. Caron did control the syrup and at another uh, point in time Mr. Badiel controlled the syrup. That's why I said can we really talk about uh, joint or shared control that's what I was wondering because that comes out of the conclusions. Well I would say it's a uh, consecutive or successive and not joint. I might go back to the illusion, uh, in Dow, for example, uh, and my colleague may be able to, uh, follow up on this, but, uh, the parallel with the, uh, drug sales and the final point of the proceeds of crime is, should not be taken into account when, uh, we're determining the amount, the amount of the fine. In other words, in a case, uh, where there's fencing, uh, and the stolen goods are transferred from one person to another, Uh, we would never be able to recover the proceeds of the crime because uh, it uh, is transferred from one person to another. In the very factual case of Mr. Van Gale, he admitted that he received, possessed and controlled $10 million by selling stolen maple syrup. And uh, I would submit the following. If there was a specific uh, point of evidence, uh, well, the balance of prob- probabilities that Mr. Vadial said that out of that $10 million, I gave $5 million to Aviccaron. Now, if uh, that had been the evidence, then obviously the uh, principle of Dieckmann in terms of apportionment should have applied. And uh, Mr. Vadial uh, should only have been accountable for the money that he had actually kept. If there had been uh, clear evidence to that effect that avic had uh, profited from uh, a certain amount, if they had separated this half and half, uh, that might have been one thing. But factually, that is not the case and hence, and I will make the link in the following minutes, I will uh, link this to the second uh, question at issue which is uh, very relevant. It could have been, uh, this could have been clarified if the question had been put at the Court of Appeal. Now, uh, just to follow up on something that I don't understand, the Court of Appeal apparently did not follow the principles of Dyckman. And the Attorney General of Ontario uh, focuses on this but in Dyckman, I have no, I noted that uh, Uh, The apportionment of benefits is certainly not an exact science, the apportionment of these uh, profits from the crime. If we look at an exact calculation uh, from these different trials and different judges, then obviously uh, we could fall into the trap of uh, double recovery uh, and uh, the inaccuracies that Uh, ensue from trying to be as accurate as possible, isn't it better? And wouldn't you, what would you suggest for this apportionment then? Because uh, speaking for myself, I found that what was done in Dyckman where the trial judge uh, set up, uh, he established a rule of three. He looked at the entire operation and he said uh, 50% is notionally apportioned to the director of the operation and then the the rabble gets a smaller amount. Do you approve of this? Uh, Well, I could not uh, comment on the exercise indictment because uh, it was, yes, it was proportional in a sense without saying that it was pro rata. It was a percentage according to the various responsibilities in that that case. What I can say to this Honourable Court is that the exercise of uh, determining a a particular amount in terms of discretion must be based on evidence. And uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal and all Canadian courts recognize this, uh, the determination, the establishment of the amount must be based on evidence. Well, perhaps Maître uh, Liberté, uh, perhaps the uh, paragraph 92 of the uh, uh, trial that was handed down by a trial judge. He said that he was paid, the, he was the one who paid the different people who worked for him. He received the money from the sale of the maple syrup and then he Uh, paid uh, $1,100 per bail to Caron, so it kind of came up to about $10 million. So he kind of divides things among uh, Caron and the other uh, co-conspirators. Yes Chief Justice and uh, Justice Kazir, I agree with you as well. If uh, uh, the courts start uh, performing mathematical calculations in to come to, to decide how sums are redistributed. If we uh, get into math here, if the courts get into math, it won't be the Queen who is the prosecutor anymore. It will be the Canada Reven- Revenue Agency. So uh, the trial judge must uh, base him or herself on the evidence adduced. I, uh, you referred to Dykeman. I, it cannot comment on the exercise that the judge performed there as to whether it's correct or not, correctly calculated, because it was based on percentages. But what is sure is that uh, this court refused to hear uh, the follow-up to Dijkman, And uh, then for me, it was uh, crystal clear the evidence in for Valier. It is clear that he was the mastermind for his operations he received 10 million dollars by selling stolen maple syrup and by uh, fencing and uh, committing fraud with regard to this uh, maple syrup and the total was about 23 million dollars. The figures are important uh, but it must reflect the scope of the crime committed the severity of the crime committed and I understand that this is a factual issue even beyond law and I will turn the floor over to my colleague uh, uh, Mr. Belnier in order to address some of the arguments with regard to the important how important it would have been for the Court of Appeal to submit uh, this question uh, in terms of intervening in the ter- determination of the amount of the fine of the fine. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are of the opinion that uh, the uh, Court of Appeal erred in law by failing to allow parties to be heard regarding change to uh, the quantum of a fine in lieu because here the appellant did not raise uh, this matter in its appeal and the Court of Quebec uh, recognizes at uh, this in paragraph 220 out of that decision. From this effect the quantum of the fine was never at issue with regard yeah. to Mr. Richard Dallier. We were in a context, in addition, where the parties were represented uh, by a lawyer in this circumstance and according to paragraph 48 of uh, the Mian decision, that meant that it was extremely rare that parties who are represented, it is rare for them to, uh, to not uh, raise a question that is relevant to their suit. Now in, these, in the current circumstances at no time did the Quebec Court of Appeal notify the parties either before or during the hearing that it had the intent to examine the quantum of the fine imposed. So we are of the we argue that uh, there that the rule in terms of uh, equity of the pr- of the procedure in this case uh, according to me when a court of appeal raises a question the parties must be notified and uh, have the opportunity to respond thereto which was not the case in the the case at bar we uh, are of the opinion that this uh, flaw in terms of audi alteram partum as my that this this was an undermining of this rule and there was an opportunity to impose a fine in lieu of. We argue that where the problem lies is that we are in a circumstance here where the Court of Appeal did not uh, restrict itself to determining the value of the uh, property as uh, should be prescribed under 462.37, as well of, uh, as the teachings of this court in 34 and 35 of Laving, as uh, reiterated as well in Rafilovich. In the current circumstances, then, what we can see is that it, the uh, Crown could have made certain representations to uh, inform the court in the decision that it should make. That is, that it has discretion that is uh, limited. Discretion is based on two fundamental principles. Should there be an imposition of a fine in view of uh, yes or no? If so, what is the value of the property that needs to be replaced? Because it is clear in law for to have a genuine replacement, the value of the fine must be equivalent thereto and uh, we can see this in paragraph of uh, 244, in paragraph 244 of the Quebec Court of Appeal, the court decided to uh, take on a discretion that is much broader than, uh, that, is, than that, that is prescribed in case law. In certain circumstances, if the uh, sentence combined with the fine meets the objectives of the Court of Appeal, than in the case at bar, the forfeiture of the proceeds as such would should be enough. We uh, believe that the court of appeal erred in this regard. In addition, uh, from our humble point of view, the court of appeal also uh, erroneously decided that the fine in lieu of should constitute a sentence that should be taken into account in its uh, determination and its, sen- in, in its uh, final decision. And in our opinion that is wrong. A fine in lieu of according to uh, 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 the criminal code uh, and we believe that there are features in this case uh, which mean that the amount of the fine can, should not be subordinated to the degree of proportionality. Therefore in the case at Barr we are confronted with a factual uh, incomprehension misunderstanding on the part of the Court of Appeal considering all of the factual circumstances that were adduced. We are of the opinion that throughout the process uh, throughout the trial the trial judges uh, uh, based themselves on the evidence adduced they made no error in law in uh, Uh, factual or uh, legal determination, whereas the Court of Appeal partially supported that. However, uh, Mr. Bernier, I'm sorry to interrupt you but I'm trying to understand the importance of this argument. The respondent uh, thinks that you are exaggerating. Now, hypothetically, I'm asking you, if uh, we ruled against you on the first question but found for you on the second question, what would be the remedy? What would the remedy be? What we are seeking here as remedy from the Supreme Court is to obtain a peremptory solution to this problem and we would like uh, there to be a uniform uh, application of rules across the country because the position of the Court of Appeal is at odds with that of the Ontario Court of Appeal as well as that of the Manitoba Court of Appeal. Well, it's at odds with one of its own rulings in fact. It's more, it's very recent decision. Yes indeed that's correct. And we argue that uh, this court needs to intervene to remedy that situation because uh, that is at odds with uh, the case law that has been adduced. We argue that uh, Audi Alterum Parte, and we could not presume in these circumstances uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, the quantum was inherent because uh, the teachings from Leving are very clear. At paragraphs 34 and 35 it is the Parliament itself through the the criminal code which must establish the amount of the fine. Nothing allowed the appellant to presume that uh, the quantum was going to be addressed uh, through these discretionary powers. Now when we look at the means of appeal invoked by Mr. Caron He was asking that his fine be reduced, given to the uh, evidence that was submitted, and therefore, there was a lawyer who drew the court's attention to a particular issue based on the assessment of the evidence adduced, and this argument was not made for Mr. Valliere. In addition, the only argument that was advanced was that the, whether there should be an imposition of a fine in lieu of in this matter. Now, both the Court of Appeal and the trial judges recognized that it was uh, suitable or, or appropriate to impose a fine in lieu of forfeiture here. And uh, this was unclear. Mr. Bernier, now, at the trial judge, at the trial level was there a possibility of apportionment uh at that level from what I understand no however evidence was submitted to different courts and the minimum value of the proceeds of crime was 17.8 million dollars and the judges were well aware of this situation and uh, when they tried to uh, assess the proof that was put before them, what uh, was retained by uh, by uh, the judge in Quebec is that uh, Avé had received $15 million for 80 shipments. And as for Richard Valliere, the evidence that was rightfully retained by the trial judge is that he had $10 million and I'm saying that in the current current circumstances the value of that property was both the maple syrup and the conversion of its proceeds and that should be applied to the different fines that were imposed. We would argue that in the case at bar, the Court of Appeal erred in assessing the evidence adduced, that is, That is, as my colleague emphasized, the proceeds of crime could come from different sources. Sources, when we look at the conversion of these proceeds, at no time did the fines in lieu of that were imposed, at no time, was it understood that there could be that these could lead to double recovery in this case and that is was one of the apprehensions of the court of appeal, which said that that situation could create a situation of double recovery now with respect we find that that is not the case the figures that were put forward show that uh we're talking about a a value of 12 million dollars that was the and seven million dollars was the minimum value of the maple syrup which means that from our viewpoint we do not agree with the exercise undertaken by the Court of Appeal. We argue that if this Honourable Court uh, found against us with regard to the first question that is whether uh, the proceeds of crime should, is the, should be solely forfeited in this case, then we consider that such a case, we would humbly argue that that would uh, fly in the face of uh, the current rule of law. And we are in a situation where the evidence had been properly assessed by the Court of Appeal, that is to determine the value of the proceeds of a crime and how much was crawled, controlled by Richard Baliere in this case then those errors would not have been made by the Court of Appeal and we feel, we argue that, uh, that and also we consider that the Court of Appeal had no power of intervention in these, the current circumstances, circumstances. considered that the trial judges committed no factual errors in assessing the evidence and therefore we argue that the fine in lieu of which was imposed on Richard Valliere was not demonstrably unfit. Therefore, all these reasons we are calling on the intervention of this Honourable co- co- Court uh, to impose the con- conclusions that we set out in our uh, factum which is to reinstate the decision by the trial judge in the case of Mr. Richard Thank you.
2: Merci. Ms. Adams?
3: Thank you, Ms. Adams. Justice, Justices Um, As you know, Ontario intervenes on the first question only and I intend to make uh, three points on this issue. So the first point that I'd like to make is that the uh, approach of the Quebec uh, Court of Appeal threatens the existing and workable framework which begins with the very clear intent of Part 12.2 of the Criminal Code, the wording of the forfeiture and fine and lieu provisions, the interpretation this court has granted in Levine, and that also includes a substantial line of appellate decisions in Ontario. Ontario's approach while remaining flexible to answer for varying factual circumstances includes cases involving multiple offenders who play differing roles in an offense or in relation to the proceeds of crime and that approach is consistent with the wording of the forfeiture provisions, the objectives of the provisions and this court's decision (coughs) in Levine, excuse me. The Ontario Jurisprudence, uh, both before and after the Dykman decision, as detailed in our factum, has consistently respected that the amount of the fine in lieu must be equal to the value of the property it is replacing, and okay, not the personal. okay, net. but
1: I want to pose a question here, because there's something which seems so disproportionate in in this and I'm, I'm not asking you to comment on the facts of this particular case, you're an intervener, but I'll give you an example. Yves Lapierre, $17,000. I don't know, maybe he drove a truck. Uh, pretty good pay for driving a truck, but is he subject to a fine of $10 million, and if he isn't, why not?
3: Um, Well, uh, thank you, Justice Rowe. I I can't comment on the specific facts of this case, but but, uh, as my friend said previously, when the court is looking at uh, imposing the fine in lieu or apportioning it, then the court needs to look to the evidence of possession and control. And so that evidence should determine how the court will apportion the fine in lieu. And, um, and, uh, and, and, I,
1: and, and and how does that fit with the scheme? Because what's been put to us is there's an, almost an automaticity with the scheme that uh, there's very little discretion. And now you're saying there's a great deal of discretion, but the discretion seems to be free-floating. One, one has no idea how it's guided. It's an unprincipled exercise of discretion, which is an extraordinary thing to contemplate.
3: Well, I think my my best answer to that, Justice Rowe, is that the the discretion obviously is is limited by, um, you know, the purposes of the provision, the nature of the order, et cetera, and the goal of replacing the proceeds of crime. And the yes, there is no specific formula for apportioning the fine amongst multiple offenders or notional co-conspirators. Um, but if you look at uh, some of the cases from Ontario. Um, you will see how it has been done Um, and yes it's not perfect but what's always kept in mind is the objective the purposes and um, to ensure that double recovery doesn't happen some cases are going to be more clear-cut than others. So, for example, in the Kachaturoff, uh decision, you'll see that there were checks issued to each of the, of the co-accused. And so it was, it was easily on a mathematical basis to apportion that fine. In other cases, it's going to be less clear. But as long as the court is is working within the framework of the provisions and ensuring that they are um, uh, staying within the confines of the total value of the property and not making orders that would uh, violate the double recovery uh, rule, if you will, then that position should be afforded uh, um, a deference on appeal. Right, so, the, so, th- so th- the
1: guy who drove the truck in a, a heist similar to this, could be on the hook for $10 million conceivably, which he can't pay and therefore he's subject to imprisonment for a period of five to 10 years. Pretty heavy duty.
3: Yes, agreed. And, and I, I would say um, that the, the court would have to look at what exactly is the evidence establishing possession and control with respect to that offender well, don't you, you look order at the to role, make that decision. Too? Don't
1: you have to look at the rule? Isn't that what they did in Dickman? I mean well, you can't you can't of course the trucker on my colleagues theory, of course, has possession at least of everything. But that can't be the complete that can't you can't begin and end with that question, it seems to me, once you say we can look at the degree of participation of a particular person.
3: Well, that that's correct, if uh, Justice Moldaver. That the relevant factors that the court is going to consider is going to include the role of respective offenders in the in the offense itself, and how uh, and and in relation to the proceeds of crime. Um, that that has to be the case. Um, and and the court may go so far as to, when there are multiple offenders, to also consider um, how much each offender benefited financially from the proceeds of crime. And I know I'm running out of time, um, or I have run out of time, but I would commend you to also look at, um, you know, the Piccinini decision where, where the court looked at the <coughs> ringleader, apportioned most of the fine to the ringleader, but also looked at the, the underlings in the operation. And there were clear records of how much those people were paid for their services under the ring, ringleader. Um, and the fine was apportioned in those amounts. Thank you. So uh, Justice Brown has a
1: question for you, and I'll give you two more minutes uh, given the nature of the questions. Put to you. So, I'll be, so I'll be really quick. Um, uh, it, it's easy <laughs> to avoid double recovery if it's the same judge deciding in respect of, the, of all the offenders, but what do we do where that's not the case?
3: Yeah uh thank you justice brown that is a uh that is a difficult question and i don't have a clear answer for you um what i can tell you and i don't know that it's perfect um, because you never know the outcome of the parallel cases but um, in the piccinini uh trial decision uh what happened there was the judge uh, the two sort of uh, main players were being tried separately uh the first one being piccinini and you'll and Justice Durno, the trial judge in that case, apportioned, uh, you know, 500,000 of the 900,000, which was the total value of the property, to Piccinini, um, you know, on the understanding and hope that the judge in the in the uh, co-conspirators case would impose the balance. Um, I don't have, I mean, that is a, it's a difficult question. Um, Of course, um, that is the, and that's the only time where I've seen that happen. Um, And I don't know if it's a perfect answer, but that's how it was dealt with in Piccinini.
1: So you can conclude.
3: Okay thank you so um, so I just in terms of Ontario's approach, I have uh, outlined it in our factum for you um, and I, I just want to reiterate that, that that approach does give discretion to deal with this issue of of multiple offenders and apportioning the fine, but it is always within the confines of the the, uh, purposes of the provision, um, the total value of the property, et cetera. The Ontario Court of Appeal has been um, consistent in its its approach of, of never calculating the fine, uh based on actual personal benefit of the offender Um, that has been consistently rejected uh, when brought before the ontario court of appeal so i commend you to um, to uh, review our factum on this issue and respectfully urge this court to adopt ontario's approach to quantifying the fines in lieu of forfeiture so that the um the the Quebec Court of Appeal decision doesn't it uh, doesn't become a precedent that will allow courts to run afoul of those principles Thank you very much Thank you very much
1: Thank you the court will take its uh, morning break 15 minutes please be seated good,
2: after- good morning everyone First of all, we want to thank you for hearing us on this issue that was raised by the appellant. I'll start with the first question. Did the Court of Appeal err in law in determining the value of the fine in lieu? Our position is similar to that of the appeal court, that there was no error in this case. The legislative framework for imposing fines was correctly applied. Question. You agree with the position of the of appeal. Did you plead in that case? Answer. I was not before the court of appeal. I was not the one who uh, argued the case. Well, did you... Are you I did not answer your question. My question is, well, I understand that you did did not, you were not there, but did your client argue that point? Answer, from our understanding, the ground of appeal that was used was determining whether or not there should be a fine in lieu imposed. Clearly, the our position we adopted following the second question presented by the appellant in this case was that demonstrably the Court of Appeal was had to determine whether a fine in lieu was to be imposed on Mr. Valier, and intrinsically it was tied to determining the value of the fine in lieu question. The question of determining whether a fine in lieu is appropriate and to know how it should be calculated, it seems to me to be two separate issues. Answer, we respectfully submit that we believe no, given that the Court of Appeal found that a fine in lieu could be Imposed, but at that time, intrinsically, it could review the amount of the forfeited property given that it had before it all the facts to be able to arrive at a decision and to determine whether or not there had to be a lieu or not. But it had to be based on the f- evidence adduced, and the evidence is the same to determine whether or not there had to be finding lieu versus the value of the property being replaced. The same facts underlie these issues that will help to determine one or the other. One last question, I'll let you go after that. The issue of I would like to know how the issue of whether or not, how the calculation had to be done, was that raised? Answer. As far as I know, and I'm treading carefully here, from what I understand, in the trial court, during determination of the appeal, the Crown had announced the different, issues, restitution, no contact with others, and so on and so forth. So the judge in the trial court in determining the the fines listed the positions of the different parties and when the position of the defense was cited, there was a paragraph saying that the defense felt that, and I'm relying on my memory here, I don't want to say things that the court did not say. The defense had proposed, thought that a three to five year prison sentence was more than sufficient. As I am saying, I don't believe that there was any detail whether or not it was disputed in trial, it was raised in the trial court. It was one of the requests of the Crown The defense must have made some submissions about that. But I'm not sure to what extent. Metri Juru, can you tell us whether your client in the trial court made specific submissions on the way that the fine had to be imposed or how the fine how the fine had to be apportioned between the different accomplices if a fine had to be imposed? Answer. The defense felt that there should be no fine, that was raised by the Crown. But I can't go any further to say, beyond saying that there had to be no fine imposed on Mr. Valier. I know I'm repeating myself, but I can't go any further to say what the submissions were concerning the value of the property that had to be replaced. I, couldn't, I can't go any further on that. Maître question. Before I let you go on, I'm trying to read your brief. What do you find wrong with Mr. Valier In paragraph 26, 27, and 28, of your factum, you mentioned the main role played by Mr. Carroll. You consider him the, as the person as, who was the mastermind of the theft, for whom the value of the proceeds of the crime based on the fine he received is 1.2 million. And you feel this injustice when it comes to the 10 million for the respondent because his role was resale of stolen goods. So his role was smaller when we were to consider the apportionment, if I understand you well. In what case was Mr. Caron's fine, who is not before us here? In what case would it be disproportionate? Answer. To answer your question, concerning Mr. Valier, we feel that the fine imposed on him is clearly unreasonable. And as the Court of Appeal said, it's even exorbitant. When we look at the way that the different fines, when imposed or apportioned. If we look at Mr. Valier's situation compared to that of Mr. Caron, yes, indeed, we feel that this is totally unfair for Mr. Valier. Let's not forget that as we saw in the evidence. The evidence is not consistent with the Crown's position on that when we refer to one of the answers he gave to your question. I totally agree that we must always come back to the evidence that was before us to determine the value of the property. Now, both in the case of Caron, as in the case of Valier, the two testified, Mr. Valier testified in his trial, And Mr. Caron testified during sentencing because he had pled guilty before a judge alone in Quebec, whereas Mr. Vallier was tried before a jury. So we have the evidence in the two cases, and we have that in the appellant's annex. If we look at the testimony that was given by Mr. Valliere, it was that he was paying between seventy-five dollars to $100,000 per trip that he bought from Mr. Varron, And the Crown also said that, in their opinion, there were 95 shipments. So, 95 shipments times 100000 if we were to rely on Mr. Valier's testimony, that gives us 9.5 million. That is exactly the position that was adopted by the Crown before the Court of Appeal in Mr. Ave Caron's case. And the decision is before you because the appeal was heard for multiple offenders who were involved in that case. Clearly, Mr. Caron, if we were to go by logic, Mr. Caron did not receive $1.2 million as he claimed during his testimony during sentencing, but he rather received $9.5 million. Something else that is peculiar in that case, particularly for Mr. Valier, well, let me conclude with Mr. Caron. Question, regarding Mr. Caron, what you're saying is that he was very lucky for having received only 1.2 million as a fine, whereas he received 9.5 million. Answer. I'm sorry for interrupting you, Mr. Chief Justice. I would not say it's luck, but rather that I consider that he was ignored by the first judge. Mr. Caron was the one who had control of the maple syrup. It was in a storehouse, in a warehouse. I understand that he was not the one who owned the warehouse, but rather his spouse using a proxy, but he was the one who controlled the maple syrup. Mr. Avi Caron was the one who stole the property and looked for someone who could buy the stolen maple syrup to resell. That was Mr. Valier's role. Mr. Valier was the one who sold the stolen property. He was not the one who initially stole the maple syrup. So I know that f- this is not the kind of calculation that should be used when we are looking at the accounts, but case law prescribes that. We must rely on evidence, and calculation should not be theoretical.
0: And so if we look at it in absolute terms, then clearly Mr. Caron acquired a property uh, that he did not pay for, but he did receive an input of $9.5 million. And that, uh, because of the testimony of Mr. Valliere, corresponds to the figures presented by Mr. Vannière, uh, where he said, yes, it's uh, approximately $10 million in terms of turnover that uh, I purchased from Avecaron Caron and that I resold. And so there were uh, uh, inputs and outputs. And. He said, well, at the end of the day, I made a million dollars. So, so the idea behind that, when I mentioned that it was unjust, is that it was because there was a type of role reversal with regard to the uh, fine in lieu of. That being said, I think that it is also relevant to uh, draw the court's attention to the following question. That is, in the case of Mr. Advocaron, the. Uh, earnings that he would have earned from uh, the uh, theft of the maple syrup were considered. And so, he uh, sold uh, 80 shipments of maple syrup at $15,000 per shipment, which comes out to $1.2 million, so that is the profit that he derived from his theft. And I can give you another example, which uh, is in the file, in the case of uh, Mr. Bourassa. uh, Just to take him as an example, when we look at the different amounts that were taken into account to establish that his fine should be $140,000, then all that was taken into account Uh, I'm saying the earnings, I'm talking about uh, the proceeds actually because it's a crime but the money that he received and so for him that were his, that was his earnings for his participation in the crime and uh, so we considered that amount plus a motorcycle and another piece of property that had a certain amount of value to come out to $245,000 so what was taken into account there was not the property that was that went through his hands but it was the profit that was derived well then perhaps there was an error with regard to the other people who got a free pass but Mr. Vadial said that he received proceeds of crime to the tune of 10 million dollars and the Crown said, well, it could have been $17 million. Uh, the Federation talks about up to $21 million. But for the purposes of the trial, he said $10 million. That was admitted. So the, on that basis, uh, the judge concluded that the fine was uh, uh, such and such an amount. But what you're telling us is that the other co-conspirators benefited from a free pass. They got a free ride because it couldn't be proved that they... Uh, Uh, dealt with the same amount of maple syrup and then so the judge took the evidence that was adduced to and uh, took advantage of that to impose a lower fine but is that the right way to adduce things, to present things? Well in fact, I think there there were two errors here. In the case of Mr. Avicaron, I know that this is not what you're ruling on today but the fact remains that in the apportionment of the amounts there was clearly a conflation, a confusion in some regard, because the evidence that was adduced in the case of Mr. Caron was the same in the sense that the testimony of both of those gentlemen was taken into account. Now, uh, this is peculiar, because in the case of Mr. Caron, the judge that he didn't really believe his testimony, he said that he had uh, very little credibility, but he did take into account the figures that were presented by Mr. Caron to establish the amount of the fine in lieu of. What we are arguing is that yes, there was this conflation, this confusion, And uh, we do believe that it is unjust that for one person, that one judge says, well, for Mr. Caron, uh, we can't prove the $9.5 million. So we're going to look to one of his co-conspirators and uh, apply that to him. And I don't think that uh, it should work that way. The definitions in the criminal code are extremely important in this case. Ms. Giroux, I have a question for you. Are the arguments that you're making and the evidence uh, that you're describing uh, of Mr. Caron, Mr. Bourassa, Mr. Valliard aren't those arguments uh, that come into the the assessment of uh, how how these people control their proceeds? I would like to hear your interpretation though of the words a fine that is equal to the value of the property for you what does that actually mean? Answer. Thank you very much uh, for your question, Justice Cote. I'm going to use uh, the provision itself, so 462, uh, 373, where it is said, and I think that uh, it, this is uh, very useful, and that's to say that the order of forfeiture should be handed down in terms of a property, a portion of a property, or uh the uh property of an offender but that that the property and uh, uh the or the offender should be ordered to pay a fine in an amount equal to the value of the property so we're saying that that uh, could be a value that is a portion a part of the property that is what I want to tell you with regard to that aspect, that the value of the property could be a part of the property and there could be an apportionment in our humble opinion when there are a number of individuals who are involved in a criminal undertaking. And then paragraph 3 says, uh, it refers back to, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, we need to refer back to uh, paragraph one of the same provision where it indicates that the judge must uh, order the forfeiture of the property or part of the property and therefore uh, if the judge is satisfied that an order of forfeiture under subsection one so that is attached to the proceeds of crime and uh, as you said correctly earlier the definition of the proceeds of crime is a property benefit or advantage obtained or derived as a result of a designated offence. And therefore, that being said, we believe that we should not confine ourselves to the definition of uh, property under Section 2. We shouldn't ignore it but the fact remains that uh, we're talking about the definition of the proceeds of crime because that is what is uh, contemplated. Justice Deschamps stated in La Vigne that what is targeted by the provisions of 12.2 are the proceeds of crime and so when we want to establish the replacement value of the property, well, it's the replacement value of the proceeds of crime which can be a part of that property, hence the apportionment that can occur among the different individuals. Yes, but Ms. Giroux, I would just like to point this out in your uh, plan. In number three, if I look at the English version, isn't that the portion of the property that is not available for forfeiture? For example, for example, half of the syrup uh is uh, can be found but not the other half so uh if the other half of that syrup cannot be found then uh perhaps that's not that doesn't apply here well in fact that's how I interpret it in the same way as you just mentioned that is that Uh, and this is uh, true for the case at Barr because there's uh, a portion of the maple syrup that was seized from different purchasers and therefore that syrup was recovered and it was uh, restituted, it was given back to the Federation. And therefore that, the value of that syrup was deducted from the amount that was stolen to reestablish the value of the replacement. Yes, but that was done in the calculation of the uh, trial judge. Uh, an amount was deducted. Are you referring to? I just want to uh, be clear, uh, Chief Justice, I'm sorry. So the reasoning of the first judge uh, when he fined $10 million. He, I believe, he deducted something like five hundred thousand dollars, which was uh, recovered. Ah, that was the restitution order, and that was not part of the property. That was not part of the maple syrup that was uh, seized. That amount, that amount, in fact, of some six hundred and some dollars, so which was uh, in U.S. currency. Uh, which was uh, converted to Canadian currency, and the Crown agreed with this uh, before the Court of Appeal, that was an amount of money that was in a bank account in the United States, and I believe in uh, a lawyer's account. So the total was about uh, $606,000 U.S., and that was money that came from the sale of maple syrup and that uh, was in those accounts and therefore there was a restitution order for that amount for the Federation so uh, the fine was reduced because of that amount was the, that was able to be seized and that was considered as part of the proceeds of crime but it wasn't uh, treated that way it was part of the restitution order instead.
2: Um, I'd
0: like to come back to the definitions that are found not only for sixty two thirty seven three or to, or 46231, uh, but I'd also draw the court's attention to what was used in Leving. So, in Leving, there are expressions such as uh, 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 the proceeds of crime, depri- depriving offenders of the proceeds of crime, and that is one of the objectives. Of Part Twelve, two, which is exactly that, to deprive the offenders of the proceeds of his or her crime, or uh, the the fact that they're deprived of financial gain, which refers to uh, profit or mar- profit margin or any profits that were derived therefrom. I would also draw your attention in uh, Rafilovich in paragraph uh, 27 and 28 okay. uh, I understand that in uh, that case we were talking about a restitution order as opposed to a fine in view of and this refers to Leving and it is said that fourth at paragraph 27 the Crown proves that certain property meets the statutory definition of proceeds of a crime under sections 462, 37, 1 or 2 only property determined to be proceeds of crime at the end of the process whether at sentencing or a forfeiture hearing is subject to forfeiture or a fine instead of, forf- instead of forfeiture and that it continues at paragraph uh, 28 and I'm just going to quote it partially. Fifth, a part or a totality of the proceeds uh, that are proven to be proceeds of crime, uh, when at the sentencing stage, is not forfeitable. And therefore, the judge who is uh, tasked with, det- with determining the sentence can uh, replace that with a fine under 462. When imposed, it uh, has to do with discretion and uh, paragraph 462.37 sets out a non-exhaustive list of the circumstances in which it is possible to uh, levy a fine in, in lieu of forfeiture. And I'm just going to go down to the very end of the, uh, misere, uh, rather, misere, uh, we're talking about, we're not talking about a calculation here. Yes. Uh, what it says after that is, uh, it must be equal to the amount proven to be proceeds of crime. And therefore, clearly here the proceeds of crime, if I come back to the definition, the initial definition, it it has to do with the uh, profit that was derived from the criminal undertaking. And I think that the, this is a good time. I'm not talking about a correction of of what my colleague said before, but I would like to uh, uh, just nuance it. There was a question put, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Justice Cote who put the question to him. That is, whether the maple syrup, whether that was considered to be the proceeds of crime. I'm sorry, I just don't want to make a mistake here. I apologize. Uh, I can't remember whether it was you, uh, Justice Cote. I unfortunately did not uh, note down which, just, uh, which judge asked the question. But the question was whether the $10 million had been, uh, for example, oh yes, it was you, Justice Cote, the $10 million, whether it had been invested so, so that uh, the profits that were derived from that account, could they be forfeited as well? And the response was yes and uh, the example of a building was given. And I think that it is important to distinguish a few things here. Yes, a building can be forfeited uh, totally, but it can also be partially forfeited. And whether forfeiture is uh, complete or partial, and uh, the building, uh, the, the, there could also be a refusal of refusal of forfeiture. But when a building is forfeited, the evidence has to show what proportion of the proceeds of crime is linked to that building. And that is why it may be confiscated uh, partly or totally. I'm going to come back to the definition, Ms. Giroux you talked about the definition of proceeds of crime and you're right it says a property benefit or advantage so that is not an issue here but when you come back to 40, 462 3 and you're arguing that uh, uh, we're talking about uh, a, a benefit or a property or part of a property but look at to what the amount of what the mo- the fine what should it be equal to it must be equal to the value of the property it doesn't uh, talk about an amount it doesn't say that uh, the amount must be equal to the profits and it doesn't say an amount that is equal to the advantage it says uh, the amount is equal to the value of the property so how can I reconcile that with what you are arguing? Because I understand that the definition refused to property benefit or, adva- or, adv- or advantage. I understand that. But at uh, 462.37.3 it says here is what the fine must be equal to and all that is mentioned is the property. So how can I reconcile those two things? First of all, we argue very respectfully that in the definition of the value of the property that includes uh, a property or a right, we believe that those terms were not repeated because they were included. So Parliament, the legislator did not deem it necessary to repeat all of these terms because If we look uh, back a few lines, if uh, that we were talking about a property benefit or advantage or the rights of an offender, then clearly we're talking about the value of the property and according to us, in our opinion, they're talking either about a part of the property or a right. And if I can Say so with regard to the second question how can we rec- reconcile the value of the property with the proceeds of crime? It is always from the perspective, and here I'm talking about Leving, in which it is clearly stated that paragraph 3 must be interpreted in light of paragraph 1. And obviously, uh, part 12.2 in which uh, that paragraph is found, well, then clearly it is part of the proceeds of crime. So the value of the property, I understand that it, the, the, rather Parliament could have chosen to use the expression the value of the proceeds of crime, but, but Maître Giroux, when we look at the objective of the legislation, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but to cover the case where uh, the, uh, the, the product of the crime, the proceeds of crime, would have been stolen where, when it can no longer be forfeited. Now, when it's forfeitable, then, we'll for, then it will be forfeited. But the fine is in lieu of forfeitures used where the property cannot be forfeited. Therefore, it is related to the value of the property. There's no more syrup. So, what is the value of the syrup? Isn't it as simple as that, where the syrup is no longer, can no longer be found? Answer. I'm going to give you the following example. And I'm going to refer to Charrière, for which there is an interpretation that is not the same as that given by my colleague. That is, where the judges at the Court of Appeal are at odds with the decision in the case of Mr. Valliere. In the case of Mr. Charriere, I just want to be, uh, look at my summary here. So in the case of the Charriere uh, case, this is uh, a grain negotiator and he was accused of theft with regard to the grain and, uh, in his uh, business he had two activities one was is that he was a uh, grain retailer so he bought grain from producers from farmers to resell it to other producers. The other activity in as part of his business is that he offered a service to grain producers. For example he could dry and store their grain in the grain silos therefore in this case what happened is uh, that the, uh, is that Mr. Charlier had financial difficulties, and I'm really summing things up here, is that what happened is that there were a number of explanations that were given to the grain producers from who he bought his grain. He made out checks to them, but these were checks, uh, uh, they were NSF, they could not be cashed because there were insufficient funds. So he gave them a lot of different explanations to try to reassure them and to, to, uh, make them wait, although he had no intention of paying them. And in the second case, he was accused of theft, and that is because his clients who stored the grain in his silos what happened is that Mr. Chalier sold that grain and therefore the silos were actually empty and their producers uh had been duped because they no longer had their grain and I think that there is a very clear distinction to be made here and that is why we find that the Court of Appeal is not at odds with the Valiar decision at the trial or rather it was it was easy to establish the uh, amount of the property the value of the property for Mr. Chaliel because there were uh, accounts to be paid there were checks that had been made out so it was easy to determine the value of the grain that had been uh, uh, embezzled if you will and uh, because there was the value of the grain that was in the silos uh, that was sold so it was quite easy it was relatively easy to establish the value of the grain not only that but in addition the value of the replacement of the property was very easy to identify
2: okay. yeah. question and if Mr. Valier were to admit to the 10 million answer if he admits that It means that he has, there was no 10 million because we see the amounts from the bank account in Exhibit S2. I don't want to focus on that aspect because Exhibit S2, well, I don't know if it's just me. I've read it many times, but I really do not quite see why we could talk about the different amount of money. What I can see is that when we look at exhibit S2 and the bank accounts, we see what was deposited, what was withdrawn, and it's about 8 million that went in and went out. So clearly, it would appear or it, co- it is consistent with Mr. Valier's testimony before the court during sentencing, during the trial. clearly because the money obtained from the sale of maple syrup enabled him to buy more and that is what the quebec court of appeal arrived at and the 10 million that being said well don't forget that it's not 10 million that was pocketed by mr valier Given that there was Mr. Avicaron who preceded him, who stole the property and reaped some profit, the property then went into Mr. Valier's hands and ended up in the hands of other buyers, including Mr. Saint Pierre, who was one of Mr. Valier's and Mr. Caron's co accusers at the beginning, co-accused, sorry, at the beginning. So, we are not dealing with a case like for Mr. Charrier, where there was just one person dealing with this criminal activity. Here we have an entire chain of participants. So, where there are multiple offenders, when we want to establish the amount of the fine in lieu, there must be a fair apportionment between the different actors in the chain. Question. So the purpose for an apportionment between the accomplices is to avoid going beyond the value of the property stolen, do we agree on that? Yes, indeed. In this case, would you agree with me, and that is my understanding of the case, that just because the accomplices received sentences that you feel were unequal to the one Mr. Valier received, we are not going beyond the amount of the property stolen. There's no double recovery problem here. Answer, there is some, somewhere, in some way, let me give you Mr. Burasa's example. Or examples of other people who received money coming from the sale of maple syrup. By, they received the money by Richard Valere. So there could have been double recovery there. The Court of Appeal says this as well. If, for example, a fine of 9.5 million was imposed on Mr. Caron, and then we got to Mr. Valliere, and a fine of 10 million was imposed on him, and then we get to Mr. St. Pierre, whose prosecution concerned five or six million. Then we have gone beyond the very value, but that's not the figures we have on the file. For those other offenders, the amount was 204,000 or so. Mr. St. Pierre received 1.2, I believe. Give me a moment, let me check my notebook. 1,029,000 or so, but that was not the amount that was requested by the Crown at the beginning. It was a fine in lieu that was imposed on him ultimately. What we are submitting here is that if the same methodology for calculations as used by the trial judge in Mr. Vallier's case was used, if that same calculation method had been used for the other offenders involved in this criminal activity, clearly the amount would have been higher for fines in Leos than the loss that was suffered by the Federation. Question, Mertujiru, you seem to be complaining not of the fact that the trial judge says that the value of the property was the value of the maple syrup, but rather of what the trial judge did during apportionment amongst the different offenders but that's not your focus you went that's not the reason why you went to the Court of Appeal you went to the Court of Appeal because of the fines in lieu that were imposed answer actually maybe I didn't express myself well I'm sorry if that's the case we believe that not only was there an error made from the onset relating to the calculation method used and the apportionment of the value of the property between the multiple offenders, but also the determination of the fine in lieu. That was a position that had previously been adopted a trial but when it is decided that a fine in lieu has to be imposed then we have to look at the value attributed to the criminal activity that was perpetrated by the individual or offender who is the object of the request so that is why we think the Court of Appeal had to intervene in a case like this. We also believe, we believe that the fact that there was no consideration given to the fine in lieu being determined by the benefit or profit deprive the offender of the criminal activity. There are three dangers here. We talked about the first, double recovery. There's a second trap. And this is something we talked about before. We could find ourselves with a value that is higher than the loss incurred by the victim. And the third is something erased as well. In another way, it could cause injustice to the different actors involved in a continuous activity like this one. Because this is not just a one-time offense involving a single individual, as we saw with Mr. Charrier, This is a continuous and ongoing offense involving multiple people. So far, we have 16 people who have been accused, so far, in this case. These traps I've just mentioned are the reason for which we believe that the Court of Appeal gave priority to the Dyckman ruling, Dyckman ruling, to come up with a scale that is fair, which furthermore relies on evidence. So the benefit or profit that was gained In this adventure by Mr. Valier is one million. Hence the intervention of the court saying it's really the proceeds of the crime because maple syrup is no longer in his possession. It has gone on to someone else who has sold it to someone else. So clearly the way in which The recovery should be done, recovery of this property that has gone on to someone else because he no longer has exclusive control because things came in and went out. When we really want to give priority to one of the objectives of Section Twelve One of the Criminal Code is that we want to deprive the offender of the proceeds of the crime. So we respectfully submit that the gain the offender had to be deprived of was 1.2 million. Question. I'm sorry, uh, Justice Cassaria. If there were higher expenses, if the truckers had been paid a higher amount, for example, That should have also been taken into account by the Crown to assess the real loss of Mr. Valier. So we are legitimizing crime. Answer If you would allow me, and this is our understanding the purpose, or rather, when Mr. Valier testifies, he says that the $10 million and the $1 million profit takes into account what he tra- 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 transported or passed on to others. And there's something that the Court of Appeal also refers to, as well as the trial court. His gain, his profit was $1 million. That could also have been subdued because it did not include transportation expenses and so on. So, losses or other related expenses were not subtracted. What was taken into account here was just the purchase and the sale of maple syrup. And he said, from that he gained $1 million without necessarily taking into account the expenses related to that activity. The appeal court says it very well. Inputs and outputs. This is clear in paragraph... 250 of his ruling it's clearly stated that we are talking about inputs or money that came in that was used to buy More maple syrup in able to increase the profit margin and further on we also see I'm trying to find the exact expression because he mentioned the omission of transport expenses. Yes, it was one million without including transport expenses and other expenses. So we can conclude that the profit or gain that he received, was the one from his criminal ex- activity and not the other expenses. That is why we believe that, in Mr. Valier's case, what should be considered to be consistent with the provisions of 122 of the Criminal Code was to target the profits and gains, Ms. Giroux your colleague from the Ontario Attorney General's office says that Dykman was not well understood by the Quebec Court of Appeal insisting on benefit as you say profit doesn't arise from our reading of Dykman which is rather about apportioning the proceeds of crime on the basis of possession and control. What do you say about the position of your colleagues from Ontario? Answer, indictment, indeed, proportionalities were established in terms of percentages. We submit respectfully, from our understanding, that those proportionalities were established on the basis of, I'm looking for the right work, I'm sorry, on the basis of the role that was played by each of the individuals. Considering that one of them was considered the mastermind, that person should have been imposed 50% of the fine in lieu or rather 50% of the value of the property. Still, in Dyckman, it is stated, and this is still our understanding of Dyckman, it is not only an apportionment that was done in relation to the control they had over the property, but it would appear that they all had control at one point or another over the property. So the apportionment depended on the role they played in the activity. So we consider that the Court of Appeal correctly interpreted the Dyckman ruling at that point. Uh, je vais, uh, je vais me per- Let me come back. Let me backtrack a bit because there's something I would like to discuss with you. The discretionary, the limited discretionary power. And that is what Justice Deschamps teaches us in the Lavin case. I understand that in the Lavin case, the factor that had to be the determining factor was the, capa- the payment capacity of the offender. That had to be taken into account during review of the first two aspects. We need to find out first of all, if a fine in lieu has to be imposed and secondly, when necessary, what is the value of that fine in lieu? Yes, indeed, the Judge has limited discretion conversely let 's turn to paragraph twenty nine which seems to be the very basis relating to the discretionary power of a judge which is not which is not exclusively limited to the value of the property or that apportionment is not possible
0: in the case of paragraph 29 it says uh, uh, we are of the opinion that the judge has limited discretionary power when uh, a a fine is required in place of the the replacement value I also gave an example of limits to that power and I mentioned a, a case where this would be exercised The factual circumstances that may give rise to an exercise of the discretion may vary and it would be unrealistic to claim to foresee all of them. Therefore, I will only deal with the, I will deal only with the factor uh, that occupies this debate, that is the ability to pay. And therefore, it seemed to us important to mention this paragraph to you, given that we consider that This is the very gravamen of our claim, that is, that uh, this uh, was the uh, the factor linked to the ability to pay. Uh, But now uh, there is, uh, there is still some openness to certain factors. For example, if uh, we're talking about a continuous and ongoing a uh, offence that uh, involves a number of uh, individuals uh, to certain degrees of involvement and uh, the possibility of double recovery. And there are other considerations as well and therefore clearly a trial judge must be aware of all of these elements in order to properly establish what the replacement value is in order to impose a fine in view of, And with regard to the second question, I'm not going to insist on that aspect a great deal. In the factum, we spoke about this briefly and as I said at the beginning of uh, my uh, arguments, we consider that the trial judge I'm sorry the judges at the court of the, of the appeal had all of the factual evidence before them in order to appropriately determine the amount of the fine in lieu of forfeiture and that there was no error committed in that regard and uh, that the uh, court the court was uh, apt to rule on that Giroux, wouldn't it have been? more appropriate, I know that you weren't there, but presuming that the uh, Court of Appeal's decision did not deal with the timeliness of calculating a fine, now, and the Court of Appeal in its decision, now, we're talking about a new way of Uh, you know, a new way of calculating these things, Uh, that's my perception of it, without asking uh, the uh, lawyers, uh, without asking counsel, with regard to integrity and transparency and credibility, don't you think that the Court of Appeal should have reopened the file and uh, asked the counsel their opinion on this? for the purposes of transparency and integrity. I will answer you very candidly and honestly, uh, Chief Justice. I did not read the transcripts of the arguments that were presented before the Court of Appeal. And uh, I, therefore, I can only presume that clearly that aspect was addressed uh, in one way or another because, as I stated earlier, insofar that it must be proven to, that there must be evidence in order to uh, determine whether a fine should be imposed as opposed to the value, the replacement value. It is the exact same evidence that is going to be heard. So I am presuming that the arguments were made uh, in uh, both cases. But once again, I respectfully submit, I humbly submit that for us this is one single issue even though there are two components. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ms. Eru, please. Uh, Mr. Eru, rather. Honourable uh, Judges, I'm going to uh, raise a number of concerns that uh, were addressed by the court. First of all, when we read the decision of the Court of Appeal, I do not believe that the decision of the Court of Appeal meant that uh, we always have to choose between uh, the net profits that were derived by the offenders or the accused and the total value of the proceeds of crime the total value of the proceeds of crime. I think that we need to read this decision by the Court of Appeal that because of the evidence and then it was open to the trial judge to exercise his discretion to uh, put in place a fine uh, that is equivalent to the $1 million that Mr. Badial profited from. Obviously, there are different uh, decisions from the Ontario Court of Appeal and across the country, so it's very difficult to uh, find a coherent line among those decisions. And I would argue humbly that none of those are trying to put in place a coherent and workable framework on the guidelines that must be used by trial judges when it comes time to establishing replacement value because all of these decisions deal with a specific problem or case that has been raised and where the court uh, was trying to address that problem uh, only. To come back to the Dieckman decision, in the Diekman decision, we're talking about double recovery. And uh, Let's come back to the basic idea. What Dick, what in Dickman the court was doing is that it looks at the file and it concludes, I believe, that uh, not apportioning the benefits— would mean uh, that the objectives of forfeiture are not being respected that is why apportionment was proceeded to and that is why we are also uh, asking about whether control is exclusive or non-exclusive because we don't want to be in a situation where the fine that is imposed because of its value and I think that this answers to Justice Rowe's question, becomes a disguised sentence for the offender and that it no longer achieves the dual objectives, that is, depri- deprivation of uh, the proceeds of crime and deterrence. I'm going to take two examples that come to mind with, along the continuum of the Commission of the Crime. For example, someone who steals $1 million worth of uh, maple syrup, that person steals that syrup and then uh, transfers it or rather test someone else with uh, transporting the maple syrup uh, to a particular destination and that takes a week. There, uh, upon arriving, someone uh, buys that maple syrup and then resells it to someone else and so forth. So each person along in that chain that I'm describing to you had a type of exclusive possession at one point in time of the proceeds of crime. And therefore, it is not, it doesn't make any sense to impose a fine that is equal to the replacement value of the syrup to each one of the individuals in that chain. Therefore, but if the situation, if if we have a situation where a group of individuals participates together in a, a criminal undertaking, then we do require apportionment. And there I'm looking back uh, to my... Uh, fellow counsel from the Attorney General of Ontario because it was asked how apportionment should be done and uh, so should a percentage be used according to uh, uh, each person's role and the response in fact is that it is up to the trial judge to conduct that exercise. It is up to the trial judge to Establish in each file based on the evidence uh, adduced in each uh, case what the role is of each person who is involved Uh, when it comes to determining the replacement value. So that the trial judge can do that, then we need a calculation grid that is appropriate for the facts in the case. So therefore, there must be a certain type of discretion that the trial judge has and that discretion for it to, to, for there to be benchmarks established, it must be that the judge respects the principles that are sought after in the forfeiture system. Maître Roux, I'm just wondering, because you seem to be agreeing with the model proposed by the Attorney General of Ontario. No, Justice Côté, I'm not. Go ahead. Oh, well, then I misunderstood you, I'm sorry. No, what the Attorney General of Ontario seems to indicate in this case is that we must be careful not to confine ourselves uh, to the uh, concept of net proceeds of crime. Our position, the position of uh, the Quebec Defence Lawyers Association, is that there are circumstances where the net proceeds of crime are impossible to apportion among the different uh, participants. And therefore, the trial judge who has that evidence uh, must be able to base him or herself on the elements in the file and uh, the net benefit. Net profits are certainly one of those things. Thank you, Mr. Ehu. Reply. Thank you, uh, justices. Very quickly, uh, to respond directly to the uh, questions that were raised by the court, I agree with my uh, honourable friend, uh, Mr. Eroux, and I'm going to quote him. It is up to the trial judge to calculate the amount of the fine in lieu of, So that is a discretionary power that is, that belongs to the trial judge and the Ontario Court of Appeal mentions it explicitly. The reasoning, the decision made by the trial judge was reasonable and therefore it, uh, it should not have intervened. Yes, but what is the responsibility of the Crown in this case? It seems to me that especially in a case where there are a number of offenders involved and in such a case, if you ask different authorities to, for different amounts, do you have the responsibility to ensure that the evidence uh, does not uh, balloon out of control? That is uh, the position of the respondent here, uh, that uh, you ask for this for Mr. Caron, for Mr. St-Pierre, for Mr. Valliere. If we add up all of that, we go well beyond the loss, well, not the net loss, uh, but, uh, the net loss uh, incurred by the Federation in terms of the maple syrup. What is your responsibility with uh, uh, Boucher that uh, limits your uh, leeway? Answer, the responsibility of the prosecutor is to confine the request to the value of the proceeds of crime and the value of the proceeds of crime, we come back to that, is a maximum amount of the property and you are absolutely right to make a link uh, between uh, uh, with the question uh, asked by uh, Justice Kamal uh, in the uh General, rather in uh, bec- the in the case of Bandial uh, the proof uh, rather the evidence uh, and if we come back to uh, Dykeman that came down in 2017 whereas the trial judge handed down its decision in it was handed down in April uh, two thousand seventeen for Vallejo, so the Superior Court could not benefit from the uh, learnings of that decision. But yes, the prosecutor has the responsibility to present requests to it w- for which the maximum calculation would be uh, the proceeds of crime. So. The source of the proceeds of crime must be the same for each offender in the group. For example, Mr. St-Pierre, that's not his case because once again, uh, his money uh, comes from a legitimate source and so the source has to be the same and it has to be the same uh, proceeds of crime that are apportioned among the accused. I have a question that comes back to one of the questions I asked you at the beginning this morning when we were talking about the admission of Mr. Valliere to the tune of 10 million dollars is that money that was admitted to as being is is that the total value of the pri- of the property or does it only concern the value of the proceeds that were controlled by Mr. Valliere the value of the property that was controlled and and possessed by Mr. Vadial was between 17 and 20 17 and 21 billion dollars the value of the maple syrup the conversion of the proceeds of crime was 10 million dollars he sold yes I understand that he va- he sold something that was worth 17 million dollars for 10 million dollars yes but he had to share things among his co-conspirators so we need a total value and then we have to understand out of that total amount how much was possessed or controlled by any one of the individuals at a given time so all I want to know with regard to the facts are you confirming that the 10 million dollars was the total value of the property the 10 million was the total value of the property possessed and controlled by Mr. Valliere in his own admission in his own facts because in the facts that were used by Mr. Avec Caron and this was supported by the Court of Appeal in its decision, the, pro- the proceeds of crime of Mr. Caron were not the same of the pro- of the, as the proceeds of crime from Mr. Caron. And that was not the same as Mr. St-Pierre either. So, and all of this is a, a question of evidence. Mr. Badial controlled and possessed $10 million. And uh, Justice Rowe, you also put a question regarding Yves Lapierre, for example, the truck driver. Which, who had a very minimal role in this operation. And uh, so Mr. Lapial was a, a boiler and uh, so he had to be paid for his activities, but Uh, to reply to your hypothetical question about the truck driver who uh, is transporting $10 million worth of syrup, can he solely be fined $10 million? No, because it's a question of possession and control. Possession, uh, the knowledge, the control, the consent, and that response was made by the Ontario Court of Appeal in Siddiqui in 2015, and for the reference, which is at uh, which is in our condensed book and i'm going to uh, cite it i'm going to quote it
1: i'm mr sidiki had possession and control of loan proceed in excess of the amount which he was fined he put most of the fund beyond reach by transferring them out of the country to a third party the third party was not a co-conspirator before the court the trial judge did not need to find that mr sidiki personally benefit from the fund he transferred to the third party on a one on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis to impose a final euro for future that include the amount of the transfer funds.
0: So we come back to the facts. Richard Valier possessed and controlled a value of $10 million at some point. Also, in reference to uh, the decision R versus AS, uh, and that's at uh, R tab 14. And therefore, in the circumstances, the fine, and that is what we're dealing with today, the fine imposed upon Mr. Vadia was $10 million. The Ontario, the Quebec Court of Appeal uh, recognized that this was the proceeds of crime and therefore that is the amount that must be, that he must be fined. Thank you very much. Thank you to all counsel for their arguments today. The court will take uh, this matter under advisement. Thank you.